Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing and the just-released and instant New York Times bestseller, Saving Time. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. I guess like for me, like the real tragedy is like this idea of a life where you're getting like further and further away from something meaningful or what you want. And then just like watching the time, like, and having to like, you know, like having to sell your time in which you do something meaningless. Like that's like deeply horrifying to me. I mean, I know that is like, that is describing a lot of jobs and work. Yeah. But I think like a lot of this, you know, book is me. I almost feel like I'm like poking someone and I'm like, hey, like, don't you hate that? Like, you know, like, like, we, like, we should, like, we shouldn't be okay with this, you know? Like, because yeah. I think, like, to some degree, like, you, if you're in a situation like that, you kind of, like, there are coping strategies, or, you know, you're just kind of like, well, I can't really think about that, because I just, like, need to, you know, I just need to get through another day. So says the brilliant Jenny O'Dell, the now two-time New York Times best-selling author. In 2019, she came out with How to Do Nothing, a treatise on the attention economy, her book landed right before COVID and offered wise and trenchant insight into what happened to all of us. That book captured my heart. And her follow-up, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, continues that same conversation, exploring the way we use our hours, whose hours count more, and what this looks like in the context of our ancient universe where time has a different measure. Okay, let's get to our conversation. loved, obviously, How to Do Nothing, along with the rest of the world. And I'm very excited for saving time. Congrats. Thank you. I feel like it's an accomplishment to, like, they're beautiful books and they're hard. They're they're not, like, the most accessible books. So congratulations on getting so many people to engage in this conversation. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start sort of where you began with saving time with this distinction between Kronos and Kairos and this juxtaposition or paradox, I guess, that you're holding throughout the book of ancient, the tiny blip that we are in this spectrum of this planet and the existence of all of these things with varying consciousnesses. And we can talk about the consciousness of rocks at some point. I love that <laughs> But juxtaposed against this, like, maximizing this culture that extols us to maximize every minute and manage our time and and this really odd 
moment that we find ourselves in where it feels like we're watching our lives and the planet expire in front of us, right? After an amount of time that's unimaginable to us. So is that, was that sort of the central thesis? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, the distinction between Kronos and Kairos as basically Greek terms for different kinds of time, that's been, I think that's been useful for a lot of people before me who were thinking about history and sort of social change and your place in history and also climate because they, you know, they give you a way or a vocabulary for talking about how there is a sense in which time feels abstract and like stuff, right? Like time is money is like the obvious example of that. But like, I have my time, you have your time. We sell our time on the market. If I give some time to you, I have less. Like it's very transactional and the time is thought of as just kind of being, you know, it's just time sort of passing over everything or it's quantifiable versus the Kairos kind of sense of time, which is more like, like, I think like seize the time or is kind of like a, a good way of understanding that sense. Like the idea that actually no moment is the same, that every moment is changing everything that happened before that, you know, moments are not equal. They have different opportunities inherent in them. And that's like a time that we all inhabit together with things that we don't even consider living traditionally. So they're very, I think like, it was interesting writing this during the pandemic because I wrote the proposal before it started and I I was already interested in that sort of distinction, Kronos and Kairos, but then it became very real because I think, you know, obviously depended on your life circumstances during the pandemic, but there was a risk, I think for a lot of people at all times started to seem the same. And so Mm -hmm. something like Kairos really, really became useful to me. I mean, more so than I expected. And I, I'm kind of like hoping maybe that distinction is even sort of easier to grasp onto for a reader, you know, post the beginning of the pandemic. Well, and and this idea that time is not fundamental, I think, is 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 not a fundamental law in some ways as laced throughout the book, that it's immutable, it's stretchy. I think you use that word. Mm-hmm. It moves at different paces. I mean, we're all familiar with this as much as we want to, like, we're convinced that the clock just ticks forward. There are those days that last forever and then the moments that fly by. Like, we're we're aware of it, right? As Mm -hmm. much as we're always constantly trying to hammer it down and calendarize our days and make lists of our productivity – and yes, I agree. Like, the the pandemic was such a strange – screeching of the clock but also at the same time felt like it moved (laughs) fast and slow and it's a subtle backdrop too but you opened the book talking about Robin Wall Kimmer I also had like a Robin Wall Kimmer COVID where I was (laughs) like reading about moss and braiding sweet grass and it's interesting that that I feel like moss and you come back to it at various points throughout the book is also a really beautiful metaphor for what you're trying to pin down. Yeah. I mean, I like moss because, I mean, it depends on the time of year, but it's not, well, it depends on where you are. It's not that hard to find, right? Like you can find it between cracks in the sidewalk. There's something kind of pedestrian about it. And yet, as you know, if you read Robin Wilkimer's book on moss, there's something like, you know, when she talks about 
what's in there, right? Almost like talking about it as a forest with these different layers and what lives in the moss and all that. And the fact that it's responding to water, like moment to moment there is, as you know, I begin the book talking about this moss that invaded my apartment. So as you can imagine, there's also a lot of moss outside, no, just outside my apartment. I pass it when I go out and we just had all that rain here in Northern California. So the moss is just like, so happy right now it's like going nuts but just like that sort of I feel like as a way of thinking about time it's a really beautiful illustration of just response like there are things that are just responding to weather or they're responding to other things that are responding to other things you know and then these things are all sort of densely interwoven and we're part of that right like we're not (laughs) even though it feels like like when the moss invaded my apartment it was like this kind of funny reminder that like there is no inside sort of civilized space and outside uncivilized space to the moss. Like there, it does not make that distinction. And like time out there is actually the same as time in here. It just doesn't feel that way to me. I, I don't mention it in the book, but someone who I who I cite in the book, Barbara Adam, who's a sociologist who's written a lot about time. One of her books at the beginning, she has this really beautiful description of like, I think it's that she's on a plane and she's just describing all of the different kinds of forms of time that are happening. Like she is like, you know, she was closing her eyes and remembering something about her family. And then like, but the plane is going, right? And then there's like a, there's an ETA and there's like all these different kinds of like ways of thinking about time that are present in that kind of sort of everyday moment. And I think that's actually like a really beautiful exercise for anybody to do, right? It's like, mm-hmm. like if you're like waiting for the bus or something and you just think about how your experience of the present is so informed by your memory, like your familiarity with that place, maybe something that happened in that place, but also the fact that you're like living in this century, like what that means, like versus, you know, like thinking about how that street must, you know, looked a hundred years ago and like how you might be in a hurry because you are trying to get somewhere by a specific time, like all of, you know, and and being impatient for the bus, like all, all of these things are kind of happening in the same moment. No, absolutely. And it is this sort of the the way that the world, nature marches on and the pacing of something like moss, right, that can desiccate, dry out, seemingly be dead for what, decades, centuries? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It's something staggering and then be reanimated that grows so slowly, but yet is everywhere. And then meanwhile, we're s- similarly you know, organic creatures who want to mechanize ourselves, right? Like we're so obsessed with this idea of optimizing and producing and quote unquote, making the most of every moment that we're missing our lives, or at least that's how I often feel that, that in all the doing, we're missing the being. And you talk a bit about, you know, this difference between vertical and horizontal time, But I think we live in a culture, right, that's very attached to the horizontal, very fixated on this linear progression of our days. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sort of like the way, I don't know if you have a, I I can't get a sense of sort of whether you have a, a spiritual life or not. I mean, I know you have a deeply natural life, which I would say is sort of the same thing. But can we talk a bit about the difference between vertical and horizontal? and how you imagine that? Yeah, so that's actually something that I am speaking of spirituality. I borrowed that from Josef Pieper, who was a German Catholic philosopher. So he is using it in a spiritual context. I wasn't necessarily, but I do think it's kind of, it's a little bit implied, right? But he is using it to make a contrast between 
like like for him horizontal time would be you work and then even your leisure is refreshment for work so like Mm -hmm. work is the center of that and there could be leisure like little gaps right but they exist in order for you to like go back to work and be like more productive and then for him vertical time would be something that just completely interrupts that and Mm -hmm gestures or opens onto something that you know I think in my experience is like those moments where you feel that your whole self is being addressed like yourself Mm -hmm. as a child yourself and as adult like all of the like your cumulative self is having an experience like something really speaks to you and I think that's often like it can be very different right like what what causes that but I always think of it as like it's usually some kind of like it's something unexpected and it's like an encounter, right? Like Mm -hmm. I talk about at the end of the book about being super exhausted after pulling an all-nighter in 2013 on an art project and being like motionless on my couch, just like completely flattened by my own tiredness. And in that state, I like thought that I was hallucinating a bunch of like pears growing at the top of this redwood tree. And then I realized that it was like 40 birds and they were all sitting clustered together and facing the sunset so they were very yellow and it was just like this like sight you know and like that was actually my that was my gateway birding experience was like I didn't know what I was looking at and I was like that is that is so strange and incredible and it kind of you know for a moment that then collapsed back into horizontal time it had like nothing to do with anything else that was going on in my life that day like it was just Mm -hmm. all of that went away for a while and then it came back so that would be like kind of this gap that has vertical time in it. I think, you know, that I, I bring that up the horizontal and the vertical time in a chapter on leisure that was very difficult for me to write and think through because I think it's, you can describe that kind of encounter, but you all, I feel like I also have to acknowledge that it can be hard to distinguish when someone is living, let's say fully on the horizontal plane because they have to versus because they think they have to. And like, if, as you said, we live in a society that is very much geared towards the horizontal, like work and refreshment for work that affects different people to a different degree. It could be very hard (laughs) to access these like little moments, right? Like, like I describe, you know, being in line for the grocery store during the pandemic and having this kind of like weird vertical time moment where I sort of realized that all of these people in line in front of me are like, fellow travelers in this strange moment and and it's this like oddly kind of spiritual moment but it's like I'm also not worried about paying for my groceries is a small it has to be a part of that right so it's like it can be complicated in that way but but I guess what I find most interesting about that book which is called Leisure the Basis of Culture by the German Catholic philosopher is that it's sort of describing something that is more a state of mind than anything else Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, 
or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com thread. Masterclass.com thread. Let's talk about leisure and, and social justice and the fact that people's time is not as available. It's not time and leisure are certainly not available to everyone. They're most available to in our patriarchal culture to wealthy white men, right? And I thought that was really because I think we're starting to have a lot of these conversations, right, of time management and optimization and all of these, the ways that we're extolled to maximize. And for a lot of certainly women alone, just women, it's like, in some ways, such a such a middle finger, because do you, you don't have kids at this point, right? I don't. But many of my friends had kids at the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. So women certainly are understand this intimately, that if you work and you have children, you typically have two jobs, if not three jobs, whereas men have one, you know, even dads, maybe one and a half if you have a really engaged partner. And so I certainly chafe, you know, in a way that I think I was oblivious to all of this programming, even though it was running in my mind. But it wasn't until recent years that I started to really have like a visceral reaction to being told how to optimize. And and I have help, right? Like I also have a lot of privilege in my life. So I have childcare, I have resources, I have help. And I loved this moment. You're talking to May, the administrator of the Working Moms Facebook group. And can you talk about how she talks about car crash dummies designed for men and and sort of this beautiful metaphor, chilling metaphor that you use throughout the book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was an amazing conversation that I had with her. Very wide ranging. And yeah, one of the things that we talked about. Oh, it's, it came up because she said basically she was saying that she had seen, you know, women taking on these values that we would think of as masculine, like being really aggressive and and like playing down emotion or intuition, like things like this, being really like sharky and getting ahead in their careers. And she said, you know, she's like, I've seen some other women like criticize those women for acting that way. She's like, but at the same time, I understand there is a system and it works a certain way and they're just trying to get ahead. And then in that context, she brought up like, you know, it's like how car crash dummies are generally male. I, I think like the the female version is like a smaller male, like that basically cars are designed for men. It's, you know, safety, the safety of cars is designed for men. And then I said, something about the what she had been saying about acting a certain way is becoming more man-shaped in order to not die in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I just think that like that was that was a helpful image that she gave me because it addresses that 
complicated like reality of like wanting to hold out hope for a completely different value system while having to live your daily life in the one that exists. That's yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 You write, becoming more man-shaped in order not to die in the car was my unwitting description of a lean-in type of feminism and of time management aimed specifically at women. And I think that's so well put, right? Like watching so many women necessarily have to contort themselves. You know, I think we have this idea that all of our problems and social ills will be solved when women have sanitized patriarchy and corporate culture with their femininity in a way. And I think what we're seeing is actually like you kind of have to be more masculine and sometimes toxically masculine in order to not die in the car. And so we're sort of just seeing the same values expressed regardless of gender. And I think it's a more, we need a more nuanced approach. We need men to be in their feminine and we just need more things that we would qualify as feminine, not necessarily female. But I think, you know, as you also write, and this is where this is, this is such a, a tough quandary. You write, it is great advice. I think you're talking about Laura Vanderkamp's book. It is great advice to seek your dream job. But in many of these books, the implied answer to the question, who will do the low-wage work, is that it doesn't matter as long as it's not you. That answer doesn't feel so good. And then you talk about Angela Davis. And I think that that book, for people who haven't read Women, Race, and Class, you know, she says... Childcare should be socialized, meal preparations should be socialized, housework should be industrialized, and all these services should be readily accessible to working class people. And I think it's such an essential point because <laughs> we're not supposed to do this alone, right? And the onus of all of these things typically falls on women. And then you sort of have this splitting this class splitting amongst women where it's everyone feels terrible. And I don't know. I don't know what the I think, you know, Angela Davis is right. It's like these services, these essential services of care need to be available to everyone. And otherwise, you have women tearing themselves apart while men keep sort of driving our economy in the direction it's going. Yeah, it's actually a book that just came out, I think, somewhat recently called Permission to Speak. It's like, it's, it's sort of what you're talking about, but applied to public speaking. And it's, it's like sort of, you know, pointing out that the way that we think authority, authority sounds is very culturally specific, right? It's like an older white man speaking slow, dispassionately and slowly. It's doing something really interesting, like addressing, you know, a reader who is not that who like doesn't really like fit into that. And sort of like, instead of trying to get you to fit into that, it's just talking about about that, about the fact that you don't fit into it. Like, isn't that interesting? What is the history of this? Like, and like, could power sound different? Like, could we yeah. make it so that power sounds different? I'm in the middle of reading that. And I really, I I sort of love things that do that, that take something mm -hmm. that you maybe experience as like an individual pathology or a shortcoming and sort of don't have a broader context for it. No, I need to read it. I mean, it's my book that's coming is about women and the patriarchy and the seven deadly sins. And so the sins, regardless of whether you're raised in any faith or belong to any denomination, being this essentially like a painful web of programming that we've all imbibed without conscious awareness, right? And so sloth, for example, is 
so much of what you're writing about is contained in that chapter, which is about specifically how women are not are not really allowed to rest, right? Like there's this idea of busyness or this idea of endless productivity or you're never doing enough for for everyone in your life. Someone's getting short the short shrift, particularly for for parents. And then permission to speak and this idea of power, which is I think what women, what men are trained for whereas women are more trained for goodness is yeah, women, you know, you can, this shows up in the anger chapter, it shows up in the pride chapter, this idea of like, who's allowed to have passion, who's allowed to be seen, I think is so insidiously baked into our culture. And yes, the dispassionate, older man is typically who we want to listen to, like, though, that's who we venerate culturally, right? You know, something that was very clarifying for me when I was researching that chapter in which I talked to May from the Working Moms group was, you know, a lot of work that's been done, again, in sociology around just like the actual experience of time as an expression of power, like where you sit in relationship to relationships of mm-hmm. other relationships of power. So like, I, I just think it's it's one of those things that where it's like once you read about it and kind of think about it for a minute, it's very intuitive and it's like we've been living it our whole lives. But but it requires you to let go of this idea that, you know, everyone has 24 hours in a day. The the best person uses their 24 hours in the best way and that like those hours are decontextualized, like yeah. those hours are not taking place in a particular location or with any kind of like interaction with other people who are doing things for you, or, you know, it's like, it's still a very pervasive concept of the Mm -hmm. the 24 hours, the 24 fungible hours. But when you let go of that, then you can kind of see like, that there are many shades of power in many different situations within the workplace and outside of the workplace. And then with within what is even considered work in the first place. And I think like, you start to see things like you just like who is expected to, to rush or slow down for whom. Yes. Like outside of like how many numerical hours do you have? And the other part, besides sort of the grind, the grind of busyness that is often a class problem, right? And a gender problem is that going back to this idea of vertical time or what I would call sort of like these downloads or these moments of like awe, wonder, or beauty that people are tapping into and sort of bringing into the world or witnessing or experiencing. But so many of our greatest inventions, I mean, you can think about Einstein, you can think about so many white men, typically, and the huge insights that they had in moments of leisure, right? Moments of downtime seems to be like those. It's not that they're necessarily like toiling at a workbench and they have a big insight or a big breakthrough. I mean, I'm sure that happens as well. But the story, the grand story that we're told is that they're on a walk or they see a bird and they get an insight about gravity or whatever it is. And so who even has access, right, to those moments of vertical time typically people who can afford it. Yeah. Like I, I sort of like try to keep in my mind this like utopian ideal of an egalitarian situation in which there is just like a constant give and take in terms of time, you know, because it's something that actually Angela Garbez talks about in her book, Essential Labor, like joy and creativity and something like caretaking 
when it is like freely given and supported, right? Like, like if you, you know, like if you have a situation in which like you can, you can give when you have something to give and then you can take when you, when you need, right? Like, like that kind of relationship to time to me is like this beautiful ideal that I hold. And even May, who I talked to, you know, for that chapter, she had had the insight that it would make a lot more sense for her to get six other mothers and, you know, like each one of them would make dinner for the others each night of the week, that that makes more sense to her than sort of like individualistic time management that she equates with like the advice to not just don't buy that latte. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The world's most annoying financial advice. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Can you tell us a bit about the Live Flat movement and its implications? Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's something that, you know, it's been around for a while. I don't remember the exact year that that happened, but that involved someone in China who had been, you know, working very hard, was burned out, and then basically, you know, saved up a little bit of money. And then I think was just like, I was on a bike, right? Like, is that what I wrote? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Biking. Um, he was biking or hiking. Like, he yeah, was just he, like, he was just kind of taking on odd jobs here and there. And he wrote this kind of like manifesto type document that 
is amazing. And it's just sort of like, I, I have been chilling. Like, it's like, I cannot, you know, I cannot be bothered to work. And it's just reminded me a lot of Diogenes, who I talked about in How to Do Nothing, the the Greek philosopher who lived in a barrel and was just like very similar in spirit, like just completely flaunting the the values of like a work-oriented society. And I think like the one of the reasons those things are always like funny, like the lying flat thing kind of be- became like a meme in part because like it was compelling, but it's also kind of fun- like funny. It's funny because in the same way that like any joke where you just say something that is so completely at odds with like what you were supposed to say that that just like gets a laugh out of people and and so I think like the the sort of reaction to or the gravitation towards this image of this person and like his manifesto just speaks to how entrenched these values are like in the society that in this case like the Chinese society that people are, are living in and then that that sort of hopped over here the lie flat like movement or like idea obviously it sort of translates differently here but you know it found fertile ground (laughs) this idea of just like like I I just like don't care anymore I cannot care anymore (laughs) about this like in this way you know yeah no and the disenchantment I mean you write about how you know another one one person I think these are all sort of primarily Gen Y people, like, why work hard? I don't own my work. And all these are all like incredibly sound questions, right? Questioning our market, looking at what's happening to the environment, not wanting to participate in that drive towards potential extinction. And I loved, throughout the book, I love how you sort of juxtapose like, quote unquote, great advice with like this other reality, this other backdrop. You write, Like Vanderkam, you're writing about Schrager. Schrager offers great career advice, pointing out that most pay increases happened before the age of 45, given that all the important stuff, skill development and networking, happens in your 20s and 30s. This is, quote, a terrible time to have a midlife crisis. So I loved that, the fact that, like, you're putting these two countervailing theories together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's another sort of tricky thing, too, right? It's like, like, I don't disrespect that advice. And I, I don't disrespect like, you know, the Vanderkam book, like, they are like, they are, you know, addressed to a certain type of reader, and they, and they do, they sort of do what they say they're going to do, right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. maybe for, you know, that's fine. It's like, it's just from this other perspective, that like, there's someone that I quote saying that like clocks, clocks and calendars reproduce the system of time that they, that they sort of speak, right. They, they, you know, they keep it going or they entrench it. And so there's like, and I, again, I just want to say that, like, I respect the difficulty of this, but there is like, it's, it's hard to know when something is like, again, like helping someone in the moment versus like making that value system even harder to think, you know, around or, or find an alternative to. It's like the more you get used to something and the more that becomes like the dominant way that we do things, like, you know, the harder it is to imagine a, an alternative to that. Yeah. I respect, you know, I was just in Montana, I grew up in Montana and I was home skiing and we had this, this kid with us who was skiing with my kids who's, we've hired a couple of years in a row and 25 year old master's in science, no scientist wants to potentially get a job at the forest service projecting avalanches and doing that sort of mitigation. And 
you know, he's 25 and every year I'm like, are you going to, what do you, how are you feeling? Like, do you want to get a job? And he was like, essentially his point was, I would rather live so, and he doesn't come from money, et cetera, but he's like, I would rather sort of be poor and live so radically within my means (laughs) than give up my freedom and or participate, like start chain myself to something from which I can't escape, right? Because that's what happens to us as we invariably get older and, and have more responsibilities. And so I have to like, it's in, it was an interesting to feel it in myself, both as like a mom being like, oh, but how are you going to, like, how is this going to work out for you? Exactly. That's what I mean, right? And that's, yeah. and that's coming from a really good place, right? Like yes. you want, it's like, right, you want, it's like you want someone to be comfortable and successful. Yes. Um, and and yeah. I completely appreciate his point of view and like this bid for this bid to not participate. Yeah. 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 I think that's something that I, you know, probably like you're describing your reaction to someone else, but I think we like kind of have that within ourselves too. Right. Like there's like that ongoing calculation. And I guess like for me, like the real tragedy is like this idea of a life where you're getting like further and further away from something meaningful or what you want. And then just like watching the time, like, and having to like, you know, like having to sell your time in which you do something meaningless. Like that's like deeply horrifying to me. I mean, I know that is like, that is describing a lot of jobs and work, Yeah, but I think like a lot of this, you know, book is me. I almost feel like I'm like poking someone and I'm like, Hey, like, don't you hate that? Like, you know, like, like, like we should, like, we shouldn't be okay with this, you know, like, because yeah. I think like to some degree, like you, if you're in a situation like that, you kind of like, there are coping strategies or, you know, you're just kind of like, well, I can't really think about that because I just like need to, you know, I just yeah. need to get through another day. At, totally. And at the end of the day, it's like, we all need to survive, right? Like you need to sell books. I'll need to sell books. Like we're all participating in, in this economy as much as, you know, we're in it as much as we don't want to be in it. Right. And it's such a bind in the same way that it's like, I want to pay well for support so that I can work. And yes, I also feel guilty that I can afford to pay for support so I can work. And it's these major conundrums and, and binds that I think that we find ourselves in and this like greater fear of like I loved when you wrote about the slow movement and the slow watch and you write that the watch is an object lesson and how products and services become quote paradoxically integral parts of fast capitalism in this world slowness is not so much enacted as consumed then quote again, slow living is now for sale and approaches a consumerist lifestyle, mostly for middle class metropolitan dwellers. But this idea that like we can take anything, right? Even this idea of like dropping out or slowing down or not participating in this sort of fervored state and sell it. It's like we're yeah. so bound by capitalism and you know, it's like look at the litany of apps teaching people how to breathe, right? Like all these things that presumably are available to us and are free it's like our instinct to turn them into something that's part of the market yeah I think of that same chapter I say that I I seeking new ways of being I just find new ways of spending yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know I think I even compare it to this I always think about the end of the Truman show 
you know, when he hits the wall, like he thinks it's this endless horizon and then he, and then boat like hits this like artificial wall, right? Like this desperate desire to imagine something like outside of the world that you're in. And then you just find out that it's just more of the same, you know, I have a morbid fascination with how fast that happens now. Right. It's like, it's almost like, I don't know. I find it so gross. It's like, we all want we, we all want meaningful connection. That is like a very basic human thing, right? And like a lot of us aren't getting it or we're not getting enough. And so as soon as like anything like crops up that's like people find meaningful, it's like you just like wait five seconds. Somehow that yeah. thing is going to get turned into a product, you know? That's especially, you know, a problem if part of the reason it was meaningful was that it wasn't transactional. <laughs> like it was right. mo- it was trying to model some other way of like being or doing. Yeah. No, it's like, it's such a rub. And yet at the same time, it's sort of like, what's the alternative? Like how, I mean, I recognize there are alternatives and I'm with you. I like chafe at, at things that are, should be absolutely free and not productized being turned into, into that and sold to us. But it's hard to imagine. It, I mean, it gets to what we were just talking about. It's hard to imagine how we could collectively do something different. And like it it requires a lot of imagination, I guess. Like I don't I don't know what it would look like if it weren't this. Yeah. I mean, someone that's been really inspiring to me on this front is um Mia Birdsong because Mm. she writes a lot about culture shift. I quote her saying that we need a new model of an American dream, basically. Yeah. A new working model and it needs to be something demonstrable, like something that people can see and sort of like you know, it it needs to be like thought through enough that someone can kind of like look at that as like a, a guiding, guiding light, right? I think part of a culture shift is like how people talk about things with each other. I mean, that's why I put so much emphasis in my book on like, link, like speaking different languages of time or trying with other people, not just in your own head or like as you're reading the book, but like in your sort of conversations with others about time. Like, I think that that's, is a very creative practice, I think, like, cause you're coming up with, you're kind of building like a new, you know, very fragile and maybe just, you know, in, in a small community or even just you and a friend, right? Like you're trying to build the sort of lattice for this other way of thinking in this case about time. But I think like one of the things, one of the advantages of doing that is that because it, because it's requiring you, it's requiring so much imagination of you to think of something that, you know, doesn't currently exist. Thinking about like, you know, even again, to go back to May, like just having that idea, right? What if I get six other moms together? And right, like already starting to like think about that. That was not a menu option that was offered to her. (laughs) That was her sort of thinking like, well, if I want to have more time, how is that actually going to happen? Like logistically here, like I don't, I'm not in a position of power. So like, I need to somehow like I need to find the others basically. And we need to like work on this together. And I think that there's something really nefarious about, there are a lot of things that are nefarious about everything being offered as a product. But one of them is that I think you could just get used to like selecting from the given options, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. what shopping is. It's like, uh, I sort of have an idea of what I want and then I will just go see what's out there and then I will select something, you know? And then if you apply that to sort of all of life, it becomes really hard to imagine something that is not being offered. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. 
For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I know you talked about Angela and essential labor, and and you certainly talk about this and the and, and the joy of of being with children or the possibility of joy, right, in childcare, and you certainly talk about it in your reverence for nature and bird watching. My fam, my brother, and my parents are hardcore bird watchers, so oh, nice. it makes me laugh. <laughs> to I've resisted, if only to just be different. My parents. And my brother are intense about their birding. But this idea of like letting, and you you tease this out at, at various points in the book, but like letting those vertical moments, right? Like finding ways to co-create that joy or like letting it happen, which in, in sometimes in instances that, that aren't joyful, but that that feels like a different paradigm shift. And part of the book seems like pushing people to remember the greater context of our lives, which is that we are tiny blips amongst a much more complex ecosystem as much as we put ourselves at the center of it. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about the consciousness of rocks, because that seemed to me sort of like a, a turning point of giving consciousness to all of the of different depths to all of these things around us in some ways backdrops us or gives us a new understanding of of time. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about why you're so fixated on the consciousness of rocks? I think yeah. they're conscious too. Oh, well, that's a surprise <laughs> to me. I'm always surprised. Yeah, there is, for any skeptics out there, I relied a lot on paper by the indigenous scholar George Tinker, who I think the title of the paper is like, oh, the stones shall cry out. And it's his argument for why rocks have consciousness and why it represents sort of intellectual hubris to assume that rocks don't have consciousness. And I think like, you know, there's probably, I'm imagining a lot of people out there have a lot of resistance to this idea. And I think maybe like an easier way in is to just think about what you afford experience to. So Mm -hmm. like for something to exist in time, the way that we imagine ourselves inhabiting historical time right like humans as western humans like as having been actors on the historical stage of like civilizational progress let's say there is typically something that's like left out of that right and so the things that we don't see as inhabiting that time with us are considered even if we would call them alive they're sort of in an in their it's like an automaton right like that's how a lot of people see animals right it's like well, that animal is just, it's behaving deterministically and it's just kind of living out its cyclical life and that doesn't have really anything to do with my time. My time is different than that time. Someone seeing it that way wouldn't necessarily say that like maybe that animal has experience because like with experience comes this idea of being responsive to like things that are happening in the moment and being a a co-creator of that or being an agent in that situation or environment. And so I think 
like what I really took from the George Tinker paper and other indigenous scholars as well is like this view of a world where like everything in the world has experience, like everything in the world is experiencing the rest of the world all the time. Yeah. I also quote in that same chapter, the author of timefulness, who is a geologist, and she talks about, you know, that term timefulness, meaning that as a geologist, she looks around and sees that like time is she is looking at time. <laughs> She's looking at the materialization of time, like these rocks that have gone through all these changes and have, you know, arguably experienced changes and are still undergoing changes that like that is actually what you're looking at. There is like nothing really inert about that. And so you're sort of admitting it into time, like the same kind of time that you feel that you inhabit. And uh, you know, I'm like not alone in, in pointing to the importance of that. Like Bill McKibben has also talked about how it's very dangerous to keep to to think about those two types of time as being separate um, in terms of the climate crisis, because if we don't see them as being one, then, you know, you have human cultural time that appears to be going forward. And then you have like ecological cyclical time and one is not able to respond to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for some people, too, who who struggle with this, it's like there there's like depth of consciousness, right? There's a rock doesn't have as much consciousness, presumably, as like a banana that doesn't have as much consciousness as a bird. But that there's like some there's an energetic matter to everything that surrounds us. And to deny that is, I think, strange, actually, to like assume that that there's well, I don't know. I think it's the 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 problem with so much of our thinking, which is everything is matter to be controlled by us, yeah. right? Like it's our dominion, and it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Yeah, you know, it's I, I, like when I was writing that chapter, as well as the the subsequent one about climate, and where I'm like really going hard on the the idea of the non human experiencing subject, like. I remember thinking like this could sound really abstract, but on the other hand, I consider it practical, like, mm-hmm. which sounds strange to say, but it's like, I, I just sort of, I feel like that is very necessary for addressing the climate crisis is like some very different way of thinking about interrelatedness. Again, this is not new. People have been making this point for a long time, but I think it really matters like whether you see other parts of the world as having experience and inhabiting time with you, it, like has huge ramifications you know and I also think it's just really fascinating like I mean like if you sometimes I like to think about these like thresholds you know where like the roots of a tree are in the rock right and thinking about like the minerals that are entering you know and how like that there's that kind of like interface and it's like from one point of view you say like the rock is not alive and the tree is alive but from this other point of view which I describe in that chapter from you know multiple angles and, and thinkers, if aliveness is is simply responsiveness and like the ability to affect other things in the world, then yes, like everything is alive in a sense. Yes. No, absolutely. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world. And yet I know it it breaks our brains. Yeah. Well, it's just like, again, like I that's why I, I really think like language is an important kind of metaphor that runs throughout my book because because it's something that we all we you know we're familiar with. And you know that if you live somewhere where everyone speaks a certain language and you don't, you will experience challenges, you know? So it's like, 
you know, you better find someone else who speaks that language so you can at least like keep it alive with them. And like, that's kind of, I feel like that's what we're dealing with here is like, I, I want to acknowledge the sort of challenge of the, the lingua franca that we all live within while trying to imagine something else or trying to speak something else. Well, Jenny Odell has a beautiful brain and it is complex and you could spend a lot of time on every page that she's written processing it. I am going to leave you with one moment that I thought was really beautiful and you'll understand why because I love words. She writes, observing that the Greek word apocalypsis meant Quote, through the concealed, Washuda writes that, quote, apocalypse has very little to do with the end of the world and everything to do with vision that sees the hidden, that dismantles the screen, end quote. Likewise, French feminist poet and philosopher Helene Sizou wrote that, quote, we need to lose the world, to lose our world, and to discover that there is more than one world and that the world isn't what we think it is, end quote. The current meaning of apocalypse is modern, in Middle English, it simply meant vision, insight, or even hallucination. The world is ending, but which world? Consider that many worlds have ended, just as many worlds have been born and are about to be born. Consider that there is nothing a priori about any of them. Just as a thought experiment, imagine that you were not born at the end of time, but actually at the exact right time, that you might grow up to be, as the poet Chen Chen writes, quote, a season from the planet of planet-sized storms. Hallucinate a scenario, hallucinate yourself in it, then tell me what you see. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. Bye.